Good morning. Good to see you all this morning. Thank you so much for being here. I also want to say hello to everyone who's watching online and on television. For those of you who are in the room, would you please give our online television audience a big hand. I also want to say thank you to Pastor Ken for preaching last week. What a wonderful word that he gave. Uh, he's actually not with us this morning. He's at another church preaching this morning. He's in high demand, so we'll be praying for him. Uh, if you have a Bible, please go to Leviticus chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Leviticus chapter 8, we're going to be in chapters 8, 9, and 10. Here in just a little bit, we're going to go to Colossians 2, and we'll end in John 14. Uh, we are in a summer series entitled God's House. Uh, we're looking at God's instructions to his people in the book of Leviticus. Uh, and as we get started, I want to remind you of the structure of Leviticus. Uh, it has a, it's a chiastic structure. We need to understand this so we understand how the book flows. So the, the uh, outer parts correspond and it works its way inward. For example, chapters 1 through 7 talk about the ritual sacrifices that the people of Israel were to offer. We talked about that two weeks ago. Well, chapters 23 through 27 talk about the ritual calendar. If you come in a layer... Uh, chapters 8 through 10 talk about the ordination of the priest, where chapters 21 through 22 talk about the qualifications of a priest. Again, if you come in a layer, uh, chapters 11 through 15 talk about the laws of ritual purity going into worship, whereas chapters 18 through 20 talk about the laws of moral purity. And then right at the center of the book, chapters 16 and 17 talks about the Day of Atonement, that day in which the sins of the people would be forgiven for one year. Now, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that Leviticus is at the center of the Pentateuch. The Pentateuch is the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of Moses. Uh, and right there, we see Leviticus at the very center, which means the center of the center is the Day of Atonement, where God is communicating to the world that, yes, we have a sin problem, but he is in the business of solving that sin problem. And so today, what I want us to do is I want us to look at Leviticus chapters 8 through 10, the first part of chapter 10. If you want some additional, additional study on the priest, you can go to chapters 21 and 22 later this week. But where we come to in the text this morning is it's time to celebrate. The people of Israel have gone through hundreds of years of slavery. God has delivered them with the Exodus. We see that account in the book of Exodus. God has met with them at Mount Sinai. He has given them the law and instructions for building the house of worship uh, for the tabernacle. And then God is now about to show up. This time has come for the people of Israel to gather with God, and God is going to come down and experience his presence in a way in which they never have before. So this is a huge time of celebration, and in the context of this celebration, we see the ordination of the first priest, Aaron and his sons, who are going to serve in the tabernacle. Now, whenever I say the word ordination, what I mean by the word ordination Ordination is the dedication and commissioning of a particular person or people for a specific God-ordained task. Let me say that again. Ordination is the dedication and commissioning of a particular person or people for a specific God-ordained task. And that is what we're going to see here in chapters 8 and 9. And then we will get into chapters 
10. So Leviticus chapter 8, starting in verse 1, here's what we see. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and that's important because Moses did not invent this. This was not his idea. This was God's idea, and God was speaking through Moses to the people. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, take Aaron and his sons with him and the garments and the anointing oil and the bull of the sin offering and two rams and the basket of unleavened bread, verse 3, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Now, this is very important to see that whenever uh, this ordination service is going to take place where these priests are going to be dedicated and commissioned in order to be about the Lord's work in the tent of meeting, particularly around the sacrifices, we see, number one, they're bringing sacrifices, which represents as a sign of what their role is going to be, but also they're bringing their garments. And we're going to explain these here in just a moment. What they would wear, these are a sign of their position before God and also before the people. But notice where this takes place. This ordination takes place with the assembly, the congregation. This is really important. This word assembly is not one that gets used a lot today uh, in church languages, uh, right? I mean, we, we call the church many different things, and, and there are many different names for the church throughout Scripture. But this word assembly is particularly important. Because an assembly, both in Old and New Testament, the assembly pointed to a divinely appointed meeting. Meaning that the gathering that is happening among God's people, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, this is something that is divine. That God has appointed this time for his people to meet for a specific reason. Right now, we are sitting in an assembly. A sacred assembly or holy assembly as scripture calls it. This is the appointed time in which God has called his people to meet. We see it all the way back to uh, the New Testament church where they would gather on the Lord's day, which is the first day of the week, which is resurrection. We call it Sunday. And so whenever we gather here as the people, just as they gathered in the Old Testament, three important things are happening that distinguish this gathering of people from every other gathering of people. The first thing is that we are here to exalt God. The whole point of our gathering, firstly, is that we are here to exalt him. That's why we sing praises to him. That's why we pray prayers of thanksgiving to him. This whole gathering that we have, this sacred assembly, it is first and foremost about God. The second thing that happens, though, is that we are edified. The saints are edified. Those who are part of the sacred assembly are edified or encouraged, if you want to use that word. And what happens when we are edified is that there is instruction that takes place from God's word, and then there is correction, because that is the greatest way in which we are edified and encouraged whenever we bring our lives more and more in alignment with who God is. And so we exalt God, we edify the saints whenever we gather in a holy assembly or sacred assembly. And then the third thing that happens is evangelism, evangelism. Worship is mission. Right now, we're living on mission. Because right now, us simply being in this room gathered as a sacred assembly dedicated to God, it is a testimony to the world around us. Everybody who knows that you're sitting here this morning, that is a testimony to them that there is something about this God that has led you to come to this place to where you gather with other people in, other, in order to exalt him and be edified yourself. And so it is evangelistic. So what we see throughout both Old and New Testament is that God calls his people to a sacred assembly and their divine things happen during that divine meeting or that divine appointment. 
And so the people are gathered here. We see in verses one through four. And then we pick it up in verse five. And it says, and Moses said to the congregation, this is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. Notice the Lord has commanded this. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. That's the first thing that we see happen. We'll talk about that in just a second. Verse seven. And he put a coat on him, Aaron, and tied a sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastplate on him. And in the breastplate, he placed the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head. And on the turban, in front, he set the gold plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Verse 10, then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. Now right here we see there before the tent of meeting, the whole congregation, the assembly is now gathered. And there are these garments that are spoken of in verse 2 that are here. And notice that it starts with the washing with water. This echoes back to even the flood where God, if you will, baptized the earth and cleansed the earth of its evil. And, but it also points toward our baptism in the future. It all starts with this washing image, and I'll show you that here in just a moment. But there's also this sash that they were to wear, signifying that they are a servant. But with that sash, there is a robe, signifying that they are also royalty. And then there's the ephod, the multicolored garment that they would wear, representing the nations. And yet there was also a breastplate with 12 stones representing the 12 tribes of Israel that they would wear over their heart as if they're bearing it over their heart. There was the Urim, which was a stone that was placed on one shoulder. This was the light that shines on our guilt is what this stone represents. And yet there was the Thummim, which was on the other shoulder, which represented innocence or perfection. Again, that the priest was bearing this on their shoulder on behalf of the people. And then there was the turban, and then this crown of gold that we see, that, that not only are the sins placed on the head as well, but there is restoration and there is a crown of life that they are to wear before the people as well. And so all of this, it just sounds like, oh, this you know, just sounds like symbolism. It is, but it points to something so very important that the priests are representing on behalf of the people. And actually, if you go into the New Testament, if you go to like Colossians chapter 2, for example, there are other places. But if you go to Colossians chapter 2, in chapter 2, Paul is talking there and he mentions baptism. He says, we have been buried with him, that is Christ, in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Christ from the dead. And so he starts, he's talking about baptism there. Then when you get into chapter 3, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, if you then who have been raised with Christ, so he's talking about all of those who have gone through baptism, they've been raised with Christ, he says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now if you go down to verse 12 there, he starts using this language. He says, put on Put on. Just as the priests were putting on these robes, we too are called, after being washed through baptism, we are called to put on some things. And notice the language that Paul uses. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Just like the priests. That's the same language for the priest in the Old Testament. Now that is us. Put on as God cho God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience. And then he uses the phrase, bearing with one another. Notice that language, bearing with one another. As the priests were wearing these garments, they were bearing them, they were wearing them, carrying them on behalf of the people. And now we, we believe in the priesthood of all believers, right? And now we are called as the priest of God, as the church, we are to bear with one another as well while we are putting on what it is that the Lord wants us to put on after our washing through baptism as well. And so this language that we see here, it kind of seems distant and foreign, but we see it, the thread run all the way through to the New Testament. And then we go down and we see that there are sacrifices that are made in Leviticus chapter 8. We pick it up in verse 22, and it says, Then he presented the other ram. One ram had already been sacrificed. And it says, The ram of ordination. The ram of ordination. And Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram, and he killed it. And Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear and on the thumb of his right hand and on the big toe of his right foot. And right here we're going, What in the world is that? It gets worse. Verse 24, then he presented Aaron's sons and Moses put some blood on the lobes of their right ear and the thumbs of their right hand and on the big toe of their right feet and Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. And again, right there we're going, what is that, right? Well, God is using a very visible but practical sign right here. It's actually not that complicated if you think about it. The ear, the thumb, and the right toe on your right foot. What he's communicating to the people is the role of the priest. They are to listen only to the word of God. Only to the word of God. Their desire is to be for the doctrine of God, not the desires of men. And then blood on their right thumb. This has to do with the work, the work of their hands, as the Bible puts it in other places. That their work is to be servants of God, not slaves to men. Not anymore, that was Egypt, right? And then on their toe, their walk, their walk before the Lord. They are to walk in the will of God, not the ways of the world. And so when you hear ear, thumb, toe, it is the word, it is their work, and it is their walk that they are being consecrated for in this moment. Now, in verse 30, the text says that Moses took some of the anointing oil, and notice what he does with it. And he took some of the blood that was on the altar, and he sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments. You're thinking, oh no, just got those, are nice and clean. And on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and the sons and his garments with him. Again, see this taking place. The assembly is there, Moses is there, Aaron is there, his sons are there. Sacrifices are being made. He takes blood, puts it on the ear, their thumb, their toe. And then he takes anointing oil and blood from the altar and he sprinkles it on them. As if he's just throwing it on them. And we say, what does that mean? The oil, the anointing oil, represented a heavenly blessing. It represented a blessing coming down from heaven. The blood represented what comes from the earth. Remember, Adam was made from the dust of the earth, Right? And not only that, it was Adam and Eve's son, Cain and Abel. When Cain killed Abel, his blood hit the ground, and God said, his blood cries out to me from the ground. And so right here, you have anointing oil that represents the blessing of God, the blessing of heaven coming down. You have the blood that represents even the curse of the earth. And these two things are coming together. 
right here in this moment, what we see and what God is communicating to the people is that in worship, in the tabernacle, this is where heaven and earth are going to come together. You and I, some of us grew up praying a prayer. Jesus taught the prayer. And the prayer has the phrase in it, on earth as in heaven. We call it the Lord's Prayer. God, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Let heaven and earth come together is what you're asking for in that moment. And right here, what we see in this, in this act of worship that would truly get our attention, God is saying to the people, this is where heaven and earth are gonna come together and this is where you're gonna find the forgiveness that you're longing for. And what will bring healing to the curse of the ground is the blessing of heaven. In chapter eight, verse 35, we see that this goes on day and night for seven days. This is a seven-day celebration. And again, what the people are celebrating is that God is coming. God is coming. God is about to come down in a unique way and meet with his people in a way in which he has never met with them before. And so we see the transition in chapter nine, verse one. It says, on the eighth day, Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. We see that there are sacrifices that are done there, more acts of worship. We pick it up in verse 22, chapter nine, Leviticus. It says, then Aaron lifted up his hands toward the people and blessed them. And he came down from offering the sin offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting. And when they came out, they blessed the people. And then watch this. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Verse 24. And fire came down before the Lord. Could you imagine being there? Fire came down came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering, the pieces of fat on the altar. And when the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. This was the moment they had been waiting for, longing for year after year, decade after decade, this moment in which they are meeting with their God and he is showing up in this powerful, powerful way. And then we get to chapter 10. All of this longing by the people, bringing them to this moment in which God sends fire from heaven, if you will, to consume and accept these offerings. Chapter 10, we see something tragic. Starting in verse one, it says, now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they've just been consecrated as priests, by the way. There's four of them total, these are two. The sons of Aaron, each took his censer. It's where you would put coals in it, put incense in it, it would smoke, you would wave it before the Lord. Each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized, some of your translations say strange, fire before the Lord. Notice the next few words. Which he had not commanded them. Very important. Aaron's sons walk in, take this moment upon themselves, offer unauthorized or strange fire which he had not commanded them. Notice what happens. Verse two, and fire came out from before the Lord again, but notice what it did, and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord said, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all people, 
I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. Right here we see this language of sanctified and glorified. What is sanctified are those things that God has sanctioned. And God is glorified when his people follow those things in which he has sanctioned. Now, whenever we read this, again, as modern readers, we go, ooh, it seems a little harsh. We're talking about some coals and some incense before the Lord. You know, what is really going on here? Well, if you read, you'll see in other places, like Exodus 30 and other places, Aaron is the only one in which God commands to burn incense before him. Not his sons. Not his sons. God gave very clear commands that Aaron was to burn the incense before him. And remember, this is just one act of worship. It's not like they went in and conducted a whole worship service. But this was Aaron's job, not theirs. And at the end of the day, what we see happen in this moment is Nadab and Abihu took worship into their own hands. And they did it their way, the way they wanted to. I told you several weeks ago, one of the major themes of Leviticus is that the worship that God accepts is the worship that God prescribes. The worship that God accepts is the worship that God prescribes. And it pushes us as modern Christians to think about the question that none of us uh, hardly ever ask. And the question is this, and if you don't hear anything else I say, I think we all have to wrestle with this question, and the question is, is the Lord pleased with my worship? Is the Lord pleased? You see, we don't ask that question as modern people very much. We like to ask the question, did I like it? Right? Did I like it? Did it move me? Did it resonate with me? Did it touch my heart? We ask those kind of questions. What Leviticus points us to and pushes us to, and not just Leviticus, all throughout Scripture, is, is the Lord pleased with our worship? Not are we pleased with our worship. In this moment, they took worship into their own hands. And listen, these are people who have seen God do amazing things. They saw the exodus. They saw God show up on Mount Sinai. They were with Moses and Aaron and the 70 elders in Exodus 24 in this special meeting with God. They've seen the glory of the Lord take them on this whole journey and instruct them all the way. But in this moment, they took worship into their own hands, which tells us that we can have many experiences with God, many experiences with God, but at no point should worship become about us. So many times this shift takes place. We come into a relationship with God. We get on fire for God. We're all about God, all about God, all about God. Then all of a sudden it just slowly starts becoming all about me, all about me, all about me. Worship's not about you. Worship's not for you. And worship certainly is not to you. <laughs> I'm meddling now, Anna. It's not. It's about him. It's for him. It's to him. Again, we like to ask the question, did I like it? Did it resonate with me? Did it move me? Well, when's the last time you asked the question, did your worship move God's heart? Amen or oh me, right? That's what this text is pushing us toward. 
This was Aaron's role. It was not theirs. Not theirs. And they took a shortcut. Let me give you three points about shortcuts. Number one is there is no shortcut to worship. So many times our mentality is we just want to get in and get out when it comes to worship. There are no shortcuts to true worship. We have to prepare ourselves to come in and be a part of the sacred assembly. When was the last time you prepared your heart to come into this room? That's the question. It takes contemplation, which will lead to correction, which will lead to consecration. Starts with contemplation. That's where Solomon said in Ecclesiastes 5.2, that famous phrase where he says, let your words be few. Do not speak hastily before the Lord. Don't just rush into God's presence is what he's saying. He's saying contemplate, think about who you are, who God is, and how that relationship is as you are approaching him. That is what leads to correction because in those moments, the Spirit shows us where we're not aligned with God. But when we come back into alignment with God, we are set free to be set apart and be a part of the sacred assembly. We have to prepare ourselves for these moments in worship. No shortcuts. Number two, there's no shortcut to leading worship. Now, some of you are thinking right now, well, thank God I'm not Jared, right? <laughs> when I notice, remember, Aaron, Aaron's sons, they're only leading one aspect of worship, not the whole service. Which means for me and you, whenever we lead others in any aspect of worship, whether we're leading a prayer, we're leading a scripture reading or a devotion or leading a song or leading people in science, when we're leading other people in any way, we have to be prepared for that moment. And we have to do what it is that God has called us, ordained to us to do. The problem here is that Aaron's sons, they wanted to do what Aaron was ordained to do. They wanted a shortcut to this type of leadership. And they were not called to it at this time. And so there's no shortcuts to worship. I have to prepare myself to come in and be a part of the sacred assembly. But I also have to prepare myself when I'm going to be leading others as a part of that sacred assembly. And whenever I do what God has ordained me to do, I find life. And whenever I try to do what God has ordained others to do, it always leads to death. This is case in point. Number three is that there are no shortcuts to God. Ultimately, there are no shortcuts to God. You know, I was thinking, Emily and I, we, our first house, if, I, if it was 700 square feet, I'm probably stretching it, okay? You with me? It was so small, we called it the bungalow, all right? You could probably put it on this platform up here. And I remember one day, Emily was not there, and I cannot for the life of me remember who it was, but somebody was coming over. And I remember this in my head because they pulled in the driveway. I don't know if it was my mom. I don't know if it was, you know, a friend. I, I forgot who it was. They were pulling in the driveway. It was a long driveway. And as they were pulling in, I was like, oh, no, the house is destroyed, right? And so I start doing the scramble. You know what I mean? It's like you, you're putting clothes in a basket and you're like, you don't even care where they go. You're just like throwing them in a closet, close the closet, you know, and you're just running around, you know, it's like dishes, you know, putting them in there, you know, and running water on them. You're trying to put stuff in the trash and then the trash is overflowing. So you try to take it out, you know, and you, you can't take it to the garbage can. So you just like sit it outside the back door and close it. Well, they come in, you know, Hey, how are you doing? Hey, good. How are you? Oh yeah. You know, doing good. The whole time they're there, I'm like cleaning, just cleaning. At one point I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm listening to you. I mean, they're making the bed, you know, I mean, the, and the whole time, finally I sat down and you know, well, glad I got stopped by. Now I got to go. 
Yeah, well, hey, stop by any time, you know. And the whole time they were there, I was cleaning the house. I had not prepared for them to come. If we're being honest, many times that's how Sunday morning is for us, isn't it? We come in to worship. And we find ourselves spending the better part of the hour trying to clean up on the inside. So we can meet with the Father. Instead of giving him our full attention, instead of being prepared for this moment in which we come in and encounter him, we, we're, we're trying to clean things up. I mean, we spend the first you know, three songs just repenting, right? Trying to prepare for the moment. I think if we're honest, really honest Christians, we could do a better job of preparing for when we come into the assembly. We could prepare ourselves to be a part of the assembly. We could prepare ourselves to lead others in the assembly. We could prepare ourselves to meet God here because the goal is not to be present. The goal is not to be present, but to fully be in his presence. Those are two different things. Not just to be present, but to fully be in his presence. There's no shortcuts. And the truth is, we don't need a shortcut. Point number four. We don't need a shortcut. We need access. We need access to the Father. In John 14, Jesus makes this famous statement that some people celebrate. Some people don't like it at all because it seems exclusive, and it is. But Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one goes to the Father except by me. I am the one, Jesus says, who can give you access to the Father, to the presence of the Father. And notice he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The priests were ordained ear, thumb, toe. The word, their work, and their walk. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, I am the way. The other phrase for that in the Bible is the work of your hands. I am the truth. I am the word. And he says, I am the life, meaning your walk in life, how you live life out. And all of this that we see take place in Leviticus 8 through 10 all points us to him because every sacrifice in the, under the old covenant is fulfilled in Jesus in the new covenant, which means he is our ram of ordination. And he is the blood that is placed on our ear for the truth, the word, our hands, the work that we do, we do on behalf of him and our feet, the walk that we have before him. But my fear for us modern Christians, and by modern Christians, I mean everybody who's here. My fear for modern Christians is that we want a generic God and then we want to worship that God on our terms. That's my fear. Jesus says, I can give you access to the Father through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. All that we see the Old Testament priests fulfill, now you are part of the New Testament priesthood. You have access because of me to the Father. And the problem with that is that, yes, Jesus is our ram of ordination, but you cannot have him on your terms. 
And I think a lot of times we find ourselves in those places where we find ourselves not necessarily fitting in as our language, clicking, whatever, with the assembly, the sacred assembly, because we're still wanting Jesus on our terms. And I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. And the question we're left with this morning is will we come to him once again, either for the first time or again, but will we do so and say, Jesus, on your terms, not mine. We are the priest. We are the priesthood. 1 Peter 2, 9, if you want to read it. That is our calling now. But we can only have that and live into that through Jesus. So my prayer is that this morning, as we get ready to pray, and you know, Jared's going to come up and lead another song, you know, and then that's when we start getting antsy. And then Neil's going to come up and, you know, like close us out. And that's where you're like gathering your stuff together before we go, right? Because you want to beat everybody out the door. While we do that, while we do that, let's prepare our hearts to live this week on his terms and not ours. Amen? Amen. Father, would you help us? Even in this moment where so many other things are on our mind, about to walk out into a busy week and there's work to be done, family things to be done and all of it is so important but right now Lord I pray that as we prepare to walk out into this week again that we would once again submit ourselves to Jesus as Lord of our life that we would see that throughout the centuries no other ram of ordination would suffice No other sacrifice would do it, but he has laid down his life on our behalf, and now he has called us to be people of truth, of his word, that the work of our hands may be his work in the world, that the walk of our feet may be his walk toward others and for others. And Lord, I pray that we would receive your son once again on his terms, because nothing else will do nothing else will do